0: This is Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us on the podcast series for Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. This season, you'll hear from 11 women across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. This week, we talk with Elaine T. Freeman, founder of the ETV Endowment. Welcome Elaine Freeman. You founded the ETV endowment more than 40 years ago, and I understand you founded it from your home and you were a volunteer at the time. How did it happen?
1: Well, that's true on my dining table, but I had a, a lot of help. You know, Henry coffin was a visionary, head of the South Carolina ETV at the time. And he, with Nella Gray Barkley, the first American manager of Spoleto, raised the money and produced the Minati opera, *The Consul*, for great performances, and PBS was very young at that time, and he wanted to make PBS his goal and make ETV a star in production
0: programming coming from That's this right. area. And from he South talked Carolina. to
1: Nella Barkley because she had worked with him. She said, "I have a friend." There was no selection process with the committee. (laughs) I wrote a management by objective proposal for him, which he liked. And the founding trustees of the endowment, they were the bulwark who consistently were followed by other great directors, the late Governor McNair, the late
0: Hugh Chapman, Nella Barkley. And what was your vision for the organization?
1: Well I loved good educational television and I knew that state funding couldn't do that and my vision was to make ETV endowment beloved as a membership organization to the state so that people who joined the endowment with their gifts every year would feel that they were the family producing all the programming for television and radio and that's what has happened. They,
0: they really own it and they then own it. all those years, what were some two or three of your most proud accomplishments? Well, of course, very proud
1: to see it grow. I'm devoted to Rudy Mankey. He was my mother-in-law's paper boy. <laughs> and he came to me with an idea and we set that idea in motion and we took near 36 trips with endowment members. He's like the Pied Piper. And that was so much fun. And we raised a lot of money for ETV in the process.
0: And he would give a guide, talk about nature. Oh yes, he was the guide. And we had the
1: fun planning that. Sally Foster, who was the financial officer at that time, Sally Foster Wrap, well known around the state. She worked with me and, and we had such fun designing the trips. That was one exciting thing. The challenge of getting ETV into decent space was another great team objective. And ETV was in an old, retired supermarket and many houses on Millwood Avenue, little houses. It was in 18 to 23 different facilities, including radio, where they had buckets under the roof because it rained in, truly, and two Ladies on staff were hit by cars crossing the street. Now, they weren't seriously injured, but ETB had to get out of that bush. All of that's been torn down now is there's modern housing. Well, ETV knew that the state record building was coming up for sale. The newspaper. The newspaper. And I'll always remember sitting before the Budget and Control Board, and they wanted some guarantee that the ETV endowment would back up the state to make it happen. And the chairman of our board at that time was Bob Royal, and he came striding in to the meeting late. I was sitting there, and he said, we'll guarantee it, and the state record building became the ETV network. But that was the administration. Then the PYA, Pierce Young Angel Building, owned by Sarah Lee, became available. And Henry said, that will be the perfect telecommunications center. Well, I couldn't help agreeing, and it was so much fun, Linda. Joan Coker was on our board, and the late John Warren was chairman of our board. And he and I went to Joan in Hartsville and said, you know, your husband's on the board of Sara Lee. Do you think we can convince them to sell us the property at bargain sale or give it to us? So we got on the a plane, with Joan taking homemade bread in bags, <laughs> because the president of Sara Lee just happened to be a friend from Chapel Hill. On the plane to
0: go to Chicago, where yes. the company is based. And we we
1: went to breakfast on the 40th floor, overlooking the Lake Michigan, and he said, we'll think about it. And it we turned out we got it at bargain sale, <laughs> part from the Sara Lee Foundation. Joan's bread was
0: excellent. And it was just so much fun. Then I had the fun. Before you go on, there's something very ironic about taking baked goods to Sarah, to Sarah Lee, Lee to seal yeah. the deal. <laughs> That's <laughs> right.
1: Then I had the challenge. We we didn't have the money. And the late John Lumpkin was head of South Carolina National Bank, and he was a neighbor. And Hugh Chapman was working. We, we got the banks to guarantee a loan for us to buy it. And then I had the fun of renting out to the Harvest Hope Food Bank, to a big um, air-condition freezer locker company, because part of it was refrigerated, and to Sears Roebuck to store things. We rented out all the space, and it was a real challenge because there was no electricity, and one time I was showing the space and a rat ran over my foot. (laughs) But we were able to get the money that way until we could get the capital campaign going. And then our trustees were wonderful. The late Robert Small took me with him to then Bell South and Piedmont Natural Gas and Lawrence Gresset. You know, they all worked together and we raised the money and the state was impressed and put in some money as well and we opened that beautiful telecommunications center in 1998, and that was so much fun. So it was a true
0: public-private partnership. It
1: was, but, you know, I had a lot of sleepless nights over it because it seemed at first almost insurmountable. I didn't know if we'd get renters. It was a couple of years before ETV could get the architects to draw the plans. They had a Dallas firm that drew plans so that if a bomber went over the studio, you couldn't hear it you know, and this floor of the main studio was floating and the main studio is named for Bill Murray, the William E. Murray Studio. He was a superb trustee from New York and Charleston and he made the original $500,000 challenge grant to begin the campaign. You see, our trustees, I can't tell you how wonderful they have been and continue to be for my successor.
0: And what has that meant? to the endowment, to the whole organization, and to viewers and listeners, ultimately. Well, their
1: commitment and their dedication has meant success for ETV in this state and beyond. The credibility, we've succeeded in having grants from so many foundations. Arthur Vining Davis and Pew and the CPB and the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, grants for Marion McPartland's piano, jazz, And having that list of trustees with their VITAs attached to our grant applications, that's meant a lot. The transparency and the accountability of the endowment has always been guaranteed because we have a watchful board. They're a hands-on board. They don't try to tell you what to do or do your job. And I think that's been true for my successor, but they are people who have been in the broader world of the corporate world, the philanthropic world, and they know that it is very important to be good stewards. And we have emphasized that stewardship. And maybe that's the third thing I could say with you. Being partners with the likes of Rudy Mankey and Beryl Dakers and others on telethons for decades was such fun. And it's always the stewardship that we've been able to talk about. You read in the paper and hear on television and radio of other nonprofits that are not stewards, and we've always been stewards. And under Kobe Ennessy, the charity Navigator has given the ETV endowment the highest rating for, I think, six years now.
0: And you retired in 2008, but you're still very active in the endowment, including supporting projects like World War II veterans and their stories.
1: I I became an executive producer through the decades of raising money to be accountable, and you're working with the likes of Bill Moyers and and other producers, and you have to have production insurance, you know, liability insurance. And so that kind of led me into being an executive producer, first with Piano Jazz, and then with John Rainey, uh, this World War II series and Vietnam series, which you have seen, and man and moment profiles of of veterans. And that has been an eye-opening experience because veterans, some of whom I've known, because I've been around a while, would never talk about what they went through. But away from that experience, enough decades, and being interviewed for a documentary about South Carolinians and their sacrifices, and not just those who served, but those who were at home, those who were building the ships in the Navy Yard, you learn how dedicated these young people were then to keep our country Free, And I have to say here that one of the most important things in ETV's mission and public radio mission is that ability to present public affairs and world view and state view in a balanced way. We need to have good commentary on the world at large as well as educational programs and cultural programs. And I think ETV has been very successful in doing that through the decades.
0: In addition to your work with the ETV endowment, your founding of it, you have been a major force within the Spartanburg community, founder of the Charles Lee Center in 1971. Your vision helped establish the Allen Hines Smith Girls Home. How have you decided which causes to support and then get behind them?
1: Well, it's, it's always been about education and a lot about special education and about young people who don't have the opportunities for education. And of course, ETV was offered that, but the Lee Center was so badly needed. I taught in the public schools here first. And I will tell you that there were four separate boards who were four separate entities who had their own money and their own mission, and they were willing to come together to form the Lee Center board to merge all their assets, to build a new entity, and it's very rare that that can happen. That was an eye-opening experience for me early in my voluntary career, to see a center that is now serving people with disabilities from birth to nursing home. It has residential components and so on, and to see that grow has been one of the most rewarding things of my life because I chaired that fundraising campaign again with a wonderful team.
0: How would you define your overriding life vision and how that has translated to success in your career and your fundraising support? I always tell my children,
1: and they will tell you this, I tell them you have to give your life away. And when you give it away, you're giving it away with other people. You share it together. And
0: nothing is ever accomplished by one person alone. Nothing. So by giving your life away, you're, you are... Inviting others to give it theirs with you. Well, what would you say has been a turning point in your life that led to your plan or your success?
1: I think it's... I, I, I don't like the word, my success. It's been a success with the people I've been working with. But I I think that Wellesley gave me a superb education, as a woman. I think junior league training gave me great education. I think in working with the Charles Lee Center and then the trustees of the endowment board, I think you have to keep learning. And I'm still learning. And that's the secret of happiness in life.
0: Who or what gives you the most inspiration?
1: Waking up every morning in this glorious world gives me enough inspiration. My dog and I walk two miles every morning before breakfast. (laughs) And I I have to say, it's my view of what gives me inspiration is my Presbyterianism.
0: You came up in your career and your fundraising work at a time when women did have many more challenges. What was your biggest workplace challenge, would you say?
1: Well, you know, that was the capital campaign for the communications center. But I found out that I was always the first woman on a board. It happened in the corporate world. It happened in the voluntary world. You know, people in the late 50s and 60s, mm, you know, do they want to have a woman? And I had some wonderful mentors in this community. And so I never felt left out. I felt that as a woman board member, I was learning and maybe I was setting an example. And then if you were a good board member, my gosh, you got called on to do this and that. And the next thing, and my children would say, mom, (laughs) did you really want to do that? But I had a supportive husband too, (laughs) so that was good.
0: What would your advice be for young women today? Watch the people around you who are
1: successful, try to learn from them, try to become part of their team, find a goal that you want to accomplish that makes you your life fulfilled and happy, and don't lose as much sleep as I have done sometimes <laughs> at raising money. You know, I, it's hard for me to understand the Me Too movement, I'm so sorry, because every gentleman I ever worked with was so honorable from the very start. So I I can't give young women advice in that regard. But I think it's being yourself and having integrity and finding people that you feel have integrity too, and work
0: with them. You mentioned the Me Too movement. How do you think it has changed gender issues in general, if it has? Oh, it has. It's made everybody very aware. And I don't think that's bad.
1: It's disappointing when people that you have admired from afar turn out to have feet of clay. And because of that movement, maybe all the mentors will be like the mentors I've had and they won't have feet of clay. So, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I can't relate to it because, oh, thank heavens it never happened to me.
0: One of the issues that women face is work-life balance. You have a family, you have demanding work hours. How have you been able to balance those two? That was maybe the biggest challenge for a long time
1: because you were up late at night and sometimes coming home from telethons at 11 o'clock at night, I would wear my husband's hat and drive home, you know, And so I'd look like a man in the car. Fortunately, he was a busy man himself. And I think one thing that's important if you're married and you're facing the challenge is to keep a good meal on the table and to participate with your husband in the sport. He and I golfed and played tennis together. And that took priority. If he wanted to do it, the heck with the fundraising. you know. I didn't know I couldn't putt until he
0: died. (laughs) So I'm learning to I'm still learning. You're still learning. How have you seen the role of women change? Oh, vastly to my delight. I was told by a board when
1: I left after a certain number of years that there'd only be one woman at a time on that board. Well, I happen to know there are a lot of women on that board. And it's wonderful to see women in governing positions. I wish they were more in executive positions. I wish they were more in the public sector. I think we are more empathetic on the whole than most men.
0: Who was your favorite teacher growing up and why? Oh my goodness, that was
1: Catherine Balderston at Wellesley. She taught Shakespeare, and she was already probably in her 70s, but she was so inspirational. And she taught me that the quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as the gentle rain upon the place below. It is twice blessed.
0: It blesses him who gives and him who receives. And I believe that. And one last question about leadership. How would you define leadership? I think leadership is having a clear
1: vision of what you want to do and set it at your goals, and then sometimes leading from behind as an innovator but a team player. I just so firmly believe that being a servant leader is more important than beating a drum.
0: Thank you very much, Elaine Freeman.
1: Thank you, Linda. It's such fun to be with you.
0: You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on know it All and SCETV.org. Subscribe to this podcast on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, or wherever you find podcasts to hear the rest of stories from this season. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer. Tyora Moody is web manager. Special thanks to Bobby Kennedy, director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.